Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Hello, Monday Match Analysis podcast listeners. Gil Gross here. This is an audio-exclusive quarterfinal roundup for the 2024 Australian Open. All four post-match analyses in this podcast. As a reminder, it's Djokovic over Fritz, Sinner over Rublev, Medvedev over Hercotch, and Zverev over Alcaraz. So it'll go down in that order. And remember, if you're only interested in the breakdown of one or two particular matches, timestamps will be in the description. So be sure to navigate as you please. Djokovic takes this in four. For my money, it's the best Djokovic-Fritz match there has ever been. Best is a, a pretty general word, but certainly the highest quality of tennis, which is mostly down to Taylor Fritz adding some wrinkles, uh, playing to the best of his ability, and being competitive in sets one and two. Sets three and four, Djokovic certainly imposed his will, created some separation, was the better player very clearly. So this was a match that evolved and changed over time. As a result, I'll kind of take it step-by-step step with my analysis, go a little bit more chronological than usual. In the end, Djokovic does indeed take a 9-0 head-to-head on Taylor Fritz. Uh, let's start with the first set. A lot went wrong for Novak. A lot went right for Taylor in this opening set. I mean, Djokovic started off putting in a lot of effort trying to get off to a quick start. I mean, uh, highly in intense in his defense, and he created some opportunities on Fritz's serve right away and just couldn't quite get there and convert on break opportunities. He had break points in three separate Fritz service games in the opening set, and he wasn't able to convert. And in the end, it was 0 for 8 Djokovic on break points. With every escape, with every hole that Fritz was able to dig himself out of, of course, his confidence and his belief grew within this opening set. And to compound those problems for Djokovic, he served terribly. The first serve percentage was 46 going into the tiebreak. At the end of the first set, it ended up being 48%. So... When you're not converting your break opportunities and you're not making your first serves, that's obviously danger zone for Djokovic. And sure enough, two set points for Taylor Fritz in this opening set at 5-6. Uh, Novak saved them pretty well, especially this 15-40 point where he made his first serve. He hit a good plus one forehand down the line and stepped inside the court for a backhand cross-court winner 
on the fifth shot of the rally, which went behind Taylor Fritz. Uh, then he had a service winner at 30-40, which was kind of a weird one. Fritz swung and missed. I don't know if the ball hit the line and therefore didn't bounce how Fritz would have expected it to bounce. But Djokovic climbs out of that and forces a first set tiebreak. I don't want to get too into the weeds on, on all this stuff, uh, but you, you'll see that I'm going somewhere. Um, in this tiebreak, there were two major mistakes that you'd circle for Taylor. Only thing that I think is important to note is that the mistakes were preceded by brilliant Djokovic defense. And one of them was a swing volley. Again, Fritz was certainly in a winning position. Certainly it was a bad mistake. But against most players, he would have already have won the point. Uh, so a missed swing volley and a forehand drop shot which was a little deep in the court. The execution was lacking on that forehand dropper a little bit, and he didn't close the net hard enough either on it. And Djokovic ended up outfoxing him from there after getting to the drop shot. There was also some uh, brilliance from Novak. There was a great short chip followed by a backhand passing shot, so bringing Taylor in against his own will. There was a second serve that Djokovic hit really big and ended up getting a service winner out of. And overall, Novak also made a couple of first serves, uh, more first serves in this tiebreak than he had been making throughout the opening set. So he takes the first set in a tiebreak. And I think big picture here, the MVP of Novak's first set victory was actually his second serve in terms of big picture themes because he needed it to be really, really good. And I thought it was a big emphasis that Fritz needed to be aggressive on the second serve return. I said that coming in because looking at the numbers in this head-to-head, -head, and again, I said this in the preview, but Djokovic has made, has won rather, uh, over 55, well over 55% of his second serve points the last three times he's played Taylor Fritz. And I thought it was important that that was going to change. But just looking at the way that Djokovic was hitting his second serve, for me, it was hard to even say that Fritz had any opportunity to attack these second serves because they were uh, they were really big. They were aggressive. And they stay, you know, they stay relatively low as well. Djokovic likes to slide it into Fritz's forehand. And uh, he's so good at remaining unattackable on the second serve. And boy, he needed that, making only 48% of his first serves. But it kind of flips around. And it goes the other way because first game of the second set, the missed first serves continue. And I kind of thought that after the first set, especially because Novak made some some opening deliveries in the tiebreak, uh, I thought it was going to turn around. And then first game of the second set, atrocious serving. This time, the second serve didn't bail out Novak. Djokovic actually double-faulted twice in this game. Fritz got the break. And the break point stuff continued. For Novak, 0 for 8 in the first set. He ended up being 0 for 7 in the second set. But I will say, Djokovic did make a couple of mistakes in the first set. If you look at the eight points, there was a missed second serve return. There was a forehand that I, I thought was pretty neutral that he shouldn't have missed. In the second set, it was all seven really great by Taylor. I looked at every point. Uh, there was one ace in there. There were five winners in rally, which is such a huge number against Novak. Five winners in rally. 
uh, one forced error in rally as well. Zero unforced errors by Djokovic is really the point that I'm trying to make. Zero unforced errors in the seven break points that Fritz saved in the second set. This was also a point in the match where I think the, the heat came into play because Djokovic was low energy, very, very low energy at points in this second set. Uh, and if you want to kind of look big picture at Djokovic's baseline game, you could say that it was too passive in big moments. And you could also say this about some of the break points in the first set. But I think the court position was being dominated by Fritz, and Djokovic didn't seem like he was too interested in challenging that and taking the ball a little bit earlier. thought the ground stroke speeds were a little low as well at times. So when you combine those two things, you have you have deep court position and lower ground stroke speeds. You're giving Taylor a lot of time. You give Fritz time, he's going to hit really big off the ground. That's where his ball striking is going to shine. So uh, I can't say that Djokovic did a great job, especially on these big points of making Taylor play defense and rushing Taylor. Other than that, Fritz really took matters into his own hand. I'm going to give more big picture thoughts on Fritz's performance a little bit later on. But before I do that, uh, I want to talk about sets three and sets four. That starts with talking about Djokovic's serve. Now, the serve stabilized in the second set. It didn't matter. Novak was already down a break, and he never broke Taylor. So it didn't matter in the second set because he served so horribly in that first game, and that was the difference. But he did start to serve well. He would serve well for the rest of the match after the first game of the second set. In fact, if you want to look at the numbers in sets three and four, good would be an understatement for how well Djokovic served. The the serve went from, from 0 to 100. It went from red to green, and it skipped yellow. That's kind of what happened in this match. Because in sets 3 and sets 4, uh, both sets were well over 70%. The ace rate was over 20% for both sets combined. 10 total aces. For those of you who who follow ace rate as a stat more carefully, you know that 20% is like John Isner level. That's like where Isner is. 82% first serve points won for Djokovic in the first and the second set. Fritz just doesn't have, sorry, second and third. I was wrong again. Third and fourth. Third time's the charm. Uh, Fritz just doesn't have the athletic defensive abilities to have a lot of success if Djokovic is going to serve well. And when he does get returns in play, which frankly wasn't all that much in three and four, uh, but obviously you have that aggressive, precise plus one ball. Fritz isn't going to win a lot of points, you know, scrambling um, or at all when Novak is hitting good spot for serves. That's the reality of this matchup. Um, and then on the other side of the coin, you have Djokovic's returning, which became just as big a problem for Fritz in sets three and sets four. Uh, sets three and four. You look at Fritz's weapons, the, the first serve and the forehand. And look, the, the backhand is tremendous, but that's not how he wants to win point in and point out on serve. 
He wants the first serve to be highly effective. He wants to control with the forehand behind that first serve. And if those things are happening, you're going to see Taylor win a lot of points on his first two swings. Serve, forehand, zero through four shot rally lengths. Well, what happened in three and four on Fritz's serve, Djokovic won the majority of zero through four shot rallies, 16 to 12. And that is a massive red flag uh, for, for Taylor and, a, you know, really kind of is going to secure Djokovic victory every time if that happens. Uh, it's not really down so much to first serve percentage because Fritz's first serve percentage, it was bad in the third, but it was good in the fourth. Novak's returning was absolutely dominant. It was just consistently neutralizing. Uh, he came up with so many deep middle returns that stifled Fritz, that rushed Fritz. And in combination, if you look at it, Djokovic, unbelievable serving, unbelievable returning. What's going to happen is he's going to create this massive advantage in the zero through four shot rally length. That's what he did. Um, pretty interesting how this played out. I wouldn't guess that it would be this drastic in this particular matchup, but Djokovic won zero through four shot rallies, 95 to 64. Fritz won rallies over five shots or rallies over four shots, I should say, 57 to 53. Fritz won the extended exchanges over the course of the match. But he didn't win it nearly as um, emphatically as Djokovic won the zero through four. Not even close. So serve return. Serve return created a massive advantage for Djokovic. Fritz. Taylor's performance. I want to end on that. Uh, it was... He should be super proud. Um, it was a Fritz stock up match, in my opinion. One of the things... So first of all, we wanted him to add wrinkles. It was like, if, if you are going to make progress in this head-to-head, -head, you're going to have to do something other than linear power tennis. And uh, he found that something, that wrinkle in the forehand drop shot. I did notice last year that Fritz was starting to hit the forehand drop shot a little bit more, just going to it. But he had massive technical flaws on it. There's a lot of body English. He would kind of, he would kind of pull his head up. His whole upper body would kind of kind of lift up off of the shot. Um, and there was just too much, too much motion happening, uh, where like you want a sense of stability and stillness when you're hitting a, a drop shot. So, uh, Fritz, I think in the off season worked on his forehand drop shot technique and he used it often in this match. He used it beautifully. I know I mentioned the one point in the tie break in the first set where it didn't work out. And uh, look, th there were a lot of points where it didn't work out, but my mindset with this was if you try some things, you can look at yourself in the mirror, I think, and you can say, I, my, my mind was working, you know, I was looking for solutions. I was trying something different. So I was so happy to see Fritz's frequent uses of the forehand drop shot. Uh, I think it was effective. Uh, in winning points for portions of the match. And it complements his game well. Complements all, all these guys who hit huge off the forehand. Complements their game well. So, like, if you're Rublev, if you're Sinner, if you're Fritz, uh, you got to have it. You got to have it. 
Um, another thing that I noticed, Fritz looking very competent with his backhand slice. That has not always been the case in his career, but in moments where it made sense, whether it be off of a Djokovic slice, whether it be off of a low ball, uh, if he was a little rushed and he just wanted to slow down the pace of the rally, uh, he would go to his slice. And when he did, it was it was good. Um, it was very it very much looked the part. Taylor also came in when there were obvious opportunities to come in. Um, the volleys were fine. You know, I don't think they, I don't think his net play was a big factor in his success in the match. I don't think they were a big factor in his failure in the match. But at the very least, uh, it wasn't a case of Djokovic is dominating with his defense and you just have a Taylor Fritz that just refuses to come forward, which it has been in some of their previous matchups. And lastly, Taylor never got passive. Big swings on the forehand. Uh, and boy, was he pulling the trigger on the backhand down the line. Uh, that was probably the one shot that helped him the most in saving the first, what, 14, I think, no, 15. I think it was the first 15 break points of the match. The shot that helped him the most, maybe the first serve, but also the backhand down the line, uh, which is a, a marvelous shot that Taylor has in his repertoire. And he did really well here against Novak. In, in just trying to use it as much as possible. So, um, yeah, I feel like Fritz really threw everything he could at, at Djokovic, but when, you know, when he can't really make the returns and Novak is dominating with his serve and Novak is holding up against his first serve and just completely neutralizing it, there's really not much Taylor can do there. So, Djokovic advances to the semis. He is 20-0 at the Australian Open when he wins his quarterfinal match. He has never lost in the Australian Open semis. He's never lost in the Australian Open final. Yannick Sinner is still yet to drop a set at the 2024 Australian Open. He reaches his second career major semifinal. Rublev, unfortunately, 0-10 in major quarterfinals. This was another one. It would have been really tough for him to win. But... Nonetheless, it it certainly hurts to continue to fall at this stage. He had such a tough draw. It was a great job getting to the quarterfinal, but that is besides the point. For now, let's talk about what happened in this match. It was exactly what I thought might happen, exactly what has happened in this matchup. The second serve dynamics made the difference. You want to look at first serve? Let's start there. The win percentage was the same, and Rublev made more first serves. So overall, if you're going to grade or assess or give a score on first serve performance, Rublev scores higher. He was objectively better on the first serve. Still lost in straight sets. This was about the second serve. Goes both ways. So we'll start first with Sinner's second serve Return against Rublev's second serve. Mind you, coming into this matchup, the five completed, sorry, the four completed matches that they've played, the best Rublev had ever done on his second serve was 44%. After this match, it's still 44%. And that was the first time they played because on this occasion, 37% was the win rate 
for Rublev on his second serve. Yannick Sinner, really one of the best second serve returners in the game. Uh, over the course of the last year, he's tied for second among top 50 players with Medvedev. Only Novak Djokovic is better. There's nowhere to hide. You can go to his forehand or his backhand. The return is still solid. He obviously has the power. He has the ability to take it early on the rise. It's the complete package. Meanwhile, Rublev's second serve, it's improved, but it is still gettable. The speeds are kind of similar, but one of the things that was standing out for me about Rublev's second serve was uh, the placement and the depth, which I thought were, were lacking at times. And for Yannick, the way he was returning, it wasn't very flashy, guys. It, it was very interesting because it wasn't one of those things where Sinner was just gunning second serve returns for winners and forced errors outright, where it was very clear, like, oh, he's just destroying the second serve. It wasn't one of those kinds of things. It was really the consistency of Sinner's second serve that was putting him in such a good position to win the majority of those points. If you take a random sample of, let's say, 10 Rublev second serves, it just felt like 7 or 8 out of the 10 were deep returns into Rublev's backhand. And then Sinner could just go to work from there. You know, just make him hit that kind of baseline half volley on the backhand, a little bit rushed, lift up on the ball, doesn't get much on it, and then go to work from there. The consistency of the return. That was the key, in my opinion, for Sinner. Then on the other side, with Yannick's second serve... Again, jamming Rublev consistently. Service winners on second serve points were pretty regular for Sinner. And he was not taking all that much risk on it. He double faulted three times. A lot of them, though, were just body serves. Particularly on the ad side, almost all of them were body serves. And Rublev never adjusted. This, to me, was a little frustrating about the performance. Andre, again, he, and, and this is true when he faces big servers, too, where I wish that he had it in his playbook, among his options, to move back on the return. I don't think he needed to do it on the first serve return in this match, and I don't think the return was really much of an issue for Rublev, in particular, on the first serve. But on the second serve... How do you get jammed over and over and over again? I mean, that is a problem. You have to respond to that by moving back, in my opinion. Especially when you're a guy who generates a tremendous amount of weight of shot. If you give yourself more time to look for your forehand, find your forehand, and take full-blooded cuts on returns of serve, like so many other players on tour are doing. Rublev has never been able to take a page out of that book. Let's move on. So that's the second serve dynamics. That really decided the match. I could almost end this here. End this there. But uh, I will talk about the second set tiebreak. That was a key swing. It was a really good start to the tiebreak for Rublev. He won five of the first six points. Three of the five that he won were on his forehand. It was him creating something great with his forehand. Firepower. Serve forehand. That's how we built a 5-1 lead. What happened after 5-1? I'm going to go through it. So the 5-1 point, 
This was a first serve from Sinner, but it was a missed spot right at the forehand of Rublev, and he missed the return. If you look at the overall numbers, I don't think Rublev was bad on return, as I said moments ago, but this was one. You have to make that return. Next point was a long rally. Uh, Sinner actually hit some, some loopier balls through the middle of the court, and ultimately, I thought Rublev just didn't really, he wasn't very active in looking for his forehand and then going after his forehand. There were opportunities in this point, including early in the point, for Rublev to do tremendous damage with his forehand. And he played it a little bit too safe. He didn't hit them softly, but he just didn't find good locations on some of those forehands that I, I hesitate to call them offensive forehands because he, he just didn't do enough. And then in the end of it, Sinner came up with a terrific running forehand. Cross court. Winner. Sinner's great at that. Uh, next point is one that I'm going to dissect in more detail. It was a point where Sinner, uh, sorry, Rublev missed his first serve. Sinner made one of those great returns to Rublev's backhand. And Rublev never got to hit another forehand for the rest of the point. Sinner ended up hitting an angled backhand cross court. Backhand down the line, forced error. Now it is 4-5. Second serve. Sinner gets a service winner into Rublev's body on a second serve. Just what I was talking about. On this occasion, Rublev made a bad read and probably should have gotten out of the way and hit a forehand return. Instead, he tried to get out of the way and hit a backhand return and ended up having to do the limbo, if you know what I mean. You know, this, this one where he's leaning back in order to get out of the way. And he missed it. Uh, now it's five all. Nothing... Rublev could do on the five all point, just a good first serve by Sinner, forehand inside out, plus one approach, high forehand volley winner. Clean point, no notes. Uh, set point now, five six. Rublev misses his first serve yet again. They get into a neutral rally here, and Rublev misses an off backhand. Not a miss that I love. If you're going to make an aggressive error, I just, I'd rather see Rublev do that with his forehand, uh, especially to miss a backhand from the middle of the court. It went wide, and even if it didn't go wide, Sinner would have been there in plenty of time. It just, it just wasn't a good miss. It was a flat-out unforced error. So that is the anatomy of the comeback. Rublev not using his forehand. Sinner doing a good job of keeping it away from the forehand. Rublev missing a couple of returns that he needs to make. Missing some first serves. Missing that backhand from a neutral spot on set point and center really good stuff from him zero mistakes made his first serves and uh came up with a brilliant forehand cross court and a really good backhand down the line and uh a good serve plus one combo as well from the back of the court the big difference for me is how they play on the run especially on the backhand side. Sinner has gotten himself to a point where he can hit that open stance backhand on the move like it is routine. He can do it 10 out of 10 times. He plays within himself. He's balanced. The timing on it is good. He gets depth. He gets some pace on it. If he wants to get pace on it, 
it's it's such a good open stance backhand, and it just feels very very reliable. And that's what's important when it comes to defense: depth, get it in, and make it deep. Like that's what defense is about. It feels like Sinner can do that really consistently when he's running to his backhand corner, and Rublev, uh, he he can't really do it that well. Rublev goes to the slice a lot easier. He doesn't consistently hit as clean or as big when he drives it compared to Sinner. And I think athleticism comes into play here. I think technique also comes into play here. And there was a, a pretty great example in this tiebreak, really, really crucial spot here, where uh, Rublev does try to hit an open stance backhand when he's pulled out wide. And uh, he ends up, making a mistake here where his base collapses and obviously what you want to do is plant your left foot hit the open stance backhand and then and then be able to push off of your your right leg straight away and recover to the middle of the court uh you know either turning and running if you're in a real desperate situation or taking some big crossovers if you are not in a desperate position but rublev Again, base collapses, and he has to take this extra step before he can actually get on his horse and start running back to the middle of the court. Um, in this case, it is a turn and run. It is not. There is no crossover here. If we can zoom out, here's the open stance backhand. And at this point, everything looks totally fine. There's nothing wrong right now with Rublev's lower body. Uh, but watch how this left leg collapses here and he almost rolls over his ankle right here. So now instead of pushing off of the right leg right now, he needs to take an, another step with his left and now he can go with his right. See that? Now, so he gets stuck in this corner. Look how slow this recovery is. Sinner hits this backhand down the line not very hard at all and not that close to the sideline. But it still ends up winning him the point. Rublev doesn't make this defensive forehand. So that's a great example. Uh, Sinner doesn't really happen to him. You know, his his legs are stronger in that position. His balance is better in that position. And uh, he, he generally just has better movement. So I think that is a big difference between the two in the baseline rallies. Another theory... In terms of baseline superiority, I do think that Sinner just played more within himself on the backhand. He kept it cleaner in the back, on the backhand, in my opinion, uh, with less frequent but more effective backhands down the line and off backhands. Big picture now um, in evaluating the performance here. Uh, was Rublev missing an edge? That's an interesting question. It kind of seemed that way. But it's always hard to find hard evidence of that. I think there is one piece of pretty good evidence, which is that Sinner at certain points, uh, excuse me, Rublev at certain points was accepting a lot of backhands instead of running around to hit the forehand. And this is something that uh, the ESPN broadcast with uh, Brad Gilbert and James Blake uh, and Jason Goodall, they were really keying in on this and harping on this. And that's an effort thing. That, that's an intensity thing. And you, you see that with Rublev. You see that with uh, even Nadal, who is always kind of lauded for his effort. But there's still a difference. Even for Nadal, there's a difference on the biggest points versus any kind of normal point with just how much effort 
and intensity a player is going to put into running around backhands and creating forehands. And usually the more intense and the more effort you're ready to uh, to, to give in, the more you're, you're getting that forehand, the more you're looking for that. Uh, because it's simply less footwork to just hit a backhand. It's just easier. So was Rublev just taking the lazier way out oftentimes and just accepting a lot of backhands? Was that potentially a sign of fatigue mentally and physically? Potentially, yeah. So I, I think that was a pretty good point by the ESPN crew. Clutch serving from Sinner was also a massive part of this, and it, it needs to be discussed. I mean, eight for eight break points saved. So many of those were really good first serves. For the tournament, 26 of 28 break points saved. You want to know why Yannick Sinner hasn't lost a set? He saved 93% of his breakpoints against. Said after the match, quote, I'm really excited when these pressure points come and I'm just trying to stay aggressive. That's a window into his mind. To say, I'm excited when the big points come. This is what I want. This is why I play. And I think he really believes that in the kind of mode that he is in right now. Uh, that's the mindset that you that you want to have, right? In team sports, we always talk about, like, does this guy want the ball? Do they want the ball with five seconds left in a tie game with the clock running down? Or are they scared to mess it up? Well, I'm excited and I'm going to be aggressive. That's called wanting the ball. And you have no choice in tennis. Whether you want the ball or you don't, <laughs> you're going to have the ball. Uh, but that's wanting the ball and it's not being afraid when you have the ball to uh, trust your skills, trust your abilities, try to make something happen. That's all I got on the match. Rublev, I'm really confident he's going to make a major semifinal. Just want to throw that out there before this video ends. Uh, this is already pretty long, so I'm not going to go into why I believe that, but I do firmly believe it. And I think it's going to happen soon. I think he's he's right there. He's just got to keep knocking on the door. And I think the game is at a place, especially mentally, where if he has a little bit of draw opportunity, he's going to do it. As for Sinner, fantastic work from him all tournament long. And now the ultimate test, Novak Djokovic. Medvedev winning yet another five-setter at this year's Australian Open to advance to his third AO semifinal in the last four years. Five sets over Hubert Hercotch, 6-4 in the fifth, and boy, that was a wild finish. Things got a little bit crazy. I got an adrenaline rush from watching that fifth set because I did not know which way that was going to go. So let's start there. The predicament that we were in heading into the fifth set and how Daniil Medvedev pulled it out. At the end of the fourth, Medvedev slowed down considerably. He he lost his legs. He wasn't cramping, but he was like 50% speed around the court. Clearly feeling it in the legs, gas tank on empty, uh, leaves the court at the end of the fourth set, tries to buy as much time as possible, has a big long conversation with James Kiathavong, the chair umpire, uh, before leaving the court, ends up being seven or eight minutes. 
comes back. And again, at this point, even though my prediction before the match was Medvedev in five, even though when both players were at their best in this match, I think Medvedev was playing better tennis and playing winning tennis. Despite all of that, it was very much looking like Daniil was in trouble. And by the way, Hercotch, fresh as a daisy. And side note, I'd never seen the man get tired. Not once in my life. I've seen him get tight, but I've never seen him get tired. Trains in Florida, doesn't tend to exert a lot of energy with the big serve and just the way he moves around the court. So that was that. But what happened in this fifth? Well, Medvedev, at least in the first three or four service holds, he served himself right through it. He he served the best he served in the match by far, and he needed it desperately because he was trying to recover from the physical collapse at the end of the fourth set. And I don't think that's an exaggeration to call it that. But what happened was, you know, Hercotch has his big serve and he's holding easily and Medvedev is conserving energy, not trying to do too much running on return games smartly. Uh, you want to just protect your serve, try to buy yourself time and hope to get a second wind. And with Medvedev getting so many free points with his serve and barely missing first serves, I'm talking 85% range in his first three, four service games. Not a lot of returns coming back. So what's happening? Nobody's making returns in this fifth set. Neither player. It's almost like Daniil is resting. So I started to do the math in my head. You have the eight-minute break at the end of the set. And then I would say you had like a 25-minute passage of play between the two. Maybe 20 minutes where they didn't get into any rallies. And Medvedev didn't really move much at all. So how long has Daniil basically been able to rest now? We're talking about a good 30 minutes. And that's where you started to feel as the set continued that a couple things were happening. One, Daniil might get a second wind here because his, his legs kind of got a rest there as I'm talking about. The other thing was Hercotch notices that Medvedev had completely slowed down and he got a little tight. And that's not surprising. You know, I mean, might as well, when I when I get something right, might as well uh, call back to it. The prediction of Medvedev in five, if you watch the preview, was mostly based on a gap in nerve management skills. Medvedev, very, very experienced late in majors, best of five. And uh, although it's not unheard of that nerves get to Medvedev, it's happened before, it's less likely and usually less extreme when it happens compared to Hercotch. And uh, certainly, Hubie missed a lot of returns that probably should have come back in the court, even though Medvedev was serving great. There were even some second serve returns that Hercotch missed. And most of the time, when Hubie did make returns in the court, he made an error pretty quickly. And I'm just talking about the beginning of the fifth set, that essential period of time where Medvedev was vulnerable and Hercotch missed his window. Then... As Medvedev started to get some legs back, he also went mad scientist net rushing. When he was on the end of the court hitting against the wind and returning against Hercotch, 
um, and, and serving in, in this case as well, uh, he realized, well, in order to prevent the rally from going long, I actually need to come forward. Daniil Medvedev needs to come forward. You heard it right. And he did really well. He won seven of nine net points in the fifth set. He was in more than Hercotch in this fifth set. Hercotch was seven for seven at net. Medvedev was seven for nine. Daniil had some serve and volleys that completely caught Hercotch by surprise. And pretty much when Medvedev got a short ball, he was executing good approach shots coming in and finishing off the point right then and there. Incredible. Not what Medvedev is usually able to do. It was very 2019-like in terms of fearlessness and surprisingness. Remember that that era of Medvedev when he was just coming up and he he hit this this streak of confidence where he was thinking extremely clearly on the court and whenever he was losing, he would try something crazy. And the best I've ever seen him volley in a match was probably the U.S. Open final that year against Nadal. Down two sets to love. It's not working from the baseline. Conditions super, super slow. This is before they sped up the courts at the U.S. Open. And Daniil goes, all right, I'm a net rusher now. And kind of made it work. Very 2019-like what he did in this fit set. He talked after the match about what was happening in his head at the time which is one of the things I love about Daniil Medvedev. He always lets you in and tells you what's going on. He talked about downplaying the consequences of defeat in his head, thinking, look, I'm against the wind. I'm very tired. I don't think I can, you know, grind this out from the baseline right now. So I need to come forward. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Whatever, I'll fly home. <laughs> he kept saying that in the post-match interview with John McEnroe. He's like, yeah, if it doesn't work, I'll fly home. So uh, apparently that was his mindset. That's downplaying the consequences of defeat in his head, enabling him to employ tactics that require a certain fearlessness because they're out of his comfort zone. So he goes to net a lot and it's successful and kind of has this blip of energy late in the set, breaks serve, holds serve at 5-4. They played some spectacular points. And uh, the serving was uh, remained pretty good for Medvedev throughout the fifth set. All right. Uh, now we can backtrack. Crazy fifth set. Crazy. But now we can backtrack. The tactic throughout the match that Daniil was mostly successful with was just staying really solid from the baseline and actually hitting Hercotch slow through the middle of the court. Just taking the pace out of it and finding the backhand specifically, which I know is a little bit counterintuitive compared to what we normally talk about with Hercotch. Normally it's forehand weakness, forehand weakness, forehand weakness. But in terms of pace generation, the backhand lags far behind the forehand. Now the backhand is a pretty good redirecting shot. It's kind of a shock absorbing shot. But what Medvedev discovered in this match is if you hit the ball really slow and get Hercotch to hit a backhand, that shot is a mess. And I'm going to make a statement here. I actually think that Hercotch's backhand is a little bit overrated. And I've been guilty of this myself. 
because there are times where the backhand down the line kind of seems like his best shot. And there are times where the open stance backhand defense seems really, really good, especially for his size. But it, it kind of first caught my attention when I was looking at Tennis Insight's shot quality. And I consistently saw Hercotch's backhand score really badly. And then I started to look at it more carefully. And it's not that I always agree with that, uh, with, with the shot quality, and that I always fall in line with it. But in this case, as soon as I started paying a little bit more attention to Hercotch's backhand, I, I, I did start to look at it as maybe maybe it gets too much credit because the forehand has been such an issue. I think that might be the case. In this match, Hercotch's forehand was miles better than his backhand. No doubt about it. And Medvedev had a lot of success picking on it with slow balls. Hubie from the back of the court didn't have the pace to get through Medvedev and didn't have the consistency to survive the rally. So he's at a shot tolerance deficit and he's at a firepower deficit or uh, he does not have point finishing ground stroke penetration. So you put those two problems together, you got big issues. Medvedev in nine plus shot rallies for the match, 44 to 26. Rarely do you see such a big disparity in long rallies. First set tiebreak, obviously also a very crucial passage of play in the match. So many neutral errors from Hercotch. Didn't come forward, didn't find enough dominance with his first serve. A lot of baseline rallies, a lot of neutral errors from Hercotch. That's how that played out. Now, in the second set, Medvedev lost his own consistency. So the, the lengthy rally dominance didn't really play out. It was also Hercotch's best set in terms of free points on first serve. Then in the third set, it was back to rally dominance for Medvedev. A lot of the same things that, that was probably, was that Daniil's best set? Might have been. Might have been. Probably. Um, so it was, you know, back to dominance in the rallies in the third set for Daniil. Then in the fourth set, Hercotch, to his credit, he tried to change things up. He realized this isn't working from the back of the court. And he started coming forward much more. And then he made another adjustment from the back. The adjustment from the back, I'm going to talk about it right now because it turned the match around in the fourth before Medvedev got his legs. Uh, sorry, before Medvedev lost his legs. Before, because Medvedev was up a break, Hercotch got it back on serve before I noticed Daniil struggling physically. Now, were things probably going on in Medvedev's head? Uh, were his legs, you know, probably feeling it a little bit at that point? Almost certainly. In fact, Medvedev said that even after the second set, he started feeling tired in this match. So that tells you probably coming in physically, the the batteries weren't fully charged if he if he ran out that quickly. But anyway, here's the adjustment. And it was a direct counter to Medvedev slow balling the Hercotch backhand. I wonder if you guys listening to my analysis know where this is going. Um, so if you try to slow ball the backhand, the counter is... You use your feet, you have extra time because the ball's not coming in fast. You use that extra time to move your feet and use your forehand. So what Hercotch did really well was every time Medvedev tried to slow ball his backhand, he skipped around it. 
and he ripped run around forehands and he accelerated and he was aggressive. And that's been the innovation also for her Koch more and more in the last five or so months, really ever since Wimbledon, her Koch has had the ability to get aggressive on his forehand. And by the way, when he gets aggressive on his forehand, he actually misses less than when he gets passive on the forehand. And that has to do with the safety of racket head acceleration. So a lot of really great forehand inside ins from Hercotch, some good ones inside out as well. It turned the match around in the fourth set. And that, you know, after that, Daniil had the, the physical decline. We went to the fifth. And now you're kind of caught up on how I viewed the ebbs and flows of that match. There were a couple of other things that were key for Medvedev that I do want to talk about. Uh, one, when Hercotch early in the fourth set, and I, I think this was also a key in the fifth, um, Medvedev did start to read Hercotch's game pretty well, and there was a lot of anticipation combined with good court position. So Daniil was much more mindful in this match, to me more mindful than he's ever been in this match, of trying to take enough time away and hug the baseline enough to deter Hercotch from coming forward. And he combined that with reading patterns very well eventually. I don't know that I saw this a lot early on, but in the second half of the match, reading Hercotch's patterns very well, and it felt like every time Hercotch hit an approach shot, Daniil was already Daniil already had a head start leaning whichever way Hercotch was going for it. And what we saw was when Hercotch tried to come forward more often in the third set a little bit, in the fourth set a lot, uh, Medvedev was anticipating the approach shots and nailing passing shots. Net efficiency in the fourth set, which was the set that Hercotch came forward the most, was 10 of 16. And I thought at this point that the Medvedev slow balls and his anticipation, court position, and passing shots. I thought those were going to be ultimately the keys to the match and he was going to cruise to victory. That's when things got complicated. Physically, fifth set, had to rely on the first serve, all the stuff I talked about at the top. And then the last thing I need to cover is how Medvedev started the match with the close return position. Yeah. I've never seen, maybe once, but I can't remember when, I feel like one time I've seen Medvedev start a match standing close, but I got to tell you, I just can't remember which match it was, and and maybe I'm imagining it. Maybe this was the first time I've seen him do it at the start, uh, because usually what I've seen from Daniil is this. Oh, you know what? I think it was against Nick Kyrgios at the U.S. Open. Yeah, I think that was the one where he started close, but it's very, very rare. What's a little bit more common, first of all, the most common is that Medvedev never changes his return position. That's the most common. This, then after that, uh, what Daniil will do is he'll be like, okay, I'm losing a lot of points here. Let me try it. Then usually he moves up, misses a couple returns, and then moves back again. <laughs> I, I've seen that like four or five times. But in this one, he starts close, and he certainly had the element of surprise. Broke right away. 
and you, you could understand why, right? Like all of the preparation for this match and everything that Hercotch has kind of hinged his success on in this matchup has kind of been predicated around, I'm going to hit a wide serve, approach shot, open court, come in. Like that's been the pattern. So when he steps up to the baseline and what the heck, he, he's in. That's, uh, that's a little bit tough to deal with. That's distracting to deal with. And uh, it, it's it's really great. You know, I'm not surprised that Medvedev pulled this out in a major. Notice when Jim Courier was having his tremendous interview with Medvedev, and then in the press conference they were asking Medvedev about it, uh, Daniil intentionally said nothing. He kept his cards close to his vest, even though after this match he said, I knew when I was answering these questions that I was going to stand close against Hercotch. Here was the reason why he stood close against Hercotch. He said that, the serve is so big that he feels that he doesn't get much of an advantage from standing back there because it's the only serve where the ball is still kind of rising when it hits the back fence. So basically he's saying the ball doesn't really slow down and like I still feel rushed from the back fence. So his logic is if I'm going to feel rushed, I might as well feel rushed from closer in. Okay. I mean, interesting. You know, frankly, I would never have thought of that. I would never have anticipated that that would be, you know, the, the reason. Um, I, I will say, you know, after the surprise element wore off, I don't think it was that effective. In the second set, Hercotch dominated with his first serve. But you know where I'm going to stand on this. I think it's a massive positive that he's mixing it in. He's starting to feel it more and more. That's going to make him better at it. And it's going to give his opponents something to think about. And that includes whoever he plays next, Carlos Alcaraz or Alexander Zverev. They're going to have to, they're going to have to now think about this. They have another thing to consider, which is what do we do if he does that? And by the way, I think that it's more effective or it, it would prove to be more effective against your Djokovic's and your Alcaraz's of the world compared to your Hercotch's of the world. And here's why. The main advantage of standing as deep as possible is volume of returns in play. And I think against Hercotch, because you have some executional issues on the plus one ball, um, and, and sometimes just, you know, in rally, there's some executional issues. I think it's in Medvedev's best interest to do whatever return position is going to achieve the most balls in play. But against Djokovic and against Alcaraz, they are so clinical behind their first serves. There are no executional issues. And as a result, I think it's a little bit more important that Medvedev finds neutralizing returns, neutralizing court position. And therefore, I think it's, it's a better sacrifice to make if he, you know, and, and they rely less on free points. So I don't think they'd, they'd take advantage of Medvedev standing in as well as Hubie would take advantage of Medvedev standing in because Hubie is likely to get more free points with against the close position. Djokovic and Alcaraz might get a smidge more free points, but I think that would be worth it because I think to give those two Djokovic and Alcaraz, to give those two so much court to work with, to me, is a big problem. All right. Um, let's leave it at that. 
Alexander Zverev with his biggest win since beating Alcaraz at Roland Garros before his ankle injury. The number two seed is out. Zverev over Alcaraz in four sets in uh, a way that nobody really could have ever predicted. Twists and turns, drama. I, you know, the, the favorite for the match shifted, I think, a couple of times in this one. It was something else. Very memorable match. And uh, let me start before I get into the match with uh, just some some general praise for Zverev that I I think he deserves, which is the guy is a resilient competitor. And this is why mental game is too general a phrase in tennis. And I think Zverev is often slapped with the label, his mental game is bad. And there's a reason for that. He gets nervous. He's blown a lot of chances, especially at majors. And that has certainly hurt his ability to actually get over the finish line and achieve what he wants to achieve in his career. But there's another side to Alexander Zverev's mental game, which has nothing to do with nerves, and it has all to do with toughness and the way you compete. And this was a great example of how good he is in that area because there was a blown lead here. We saw the bad side of Zverev's mental game. He could not maintain the level that got him to a position where he was serving for the match, and we'll get into more detail. But he did go back to work at the very start of the fourth set. He did not let it linger. A lot of players would let that linger. A ton of them. There was also, in my opinion, some fatigue in the fourth set that set in. He fought through it. There was discomfort, I think, in the fourth set in terms of his feet being a little bit battered. He fought through it. He wouldn't have been in this match. He wouldn't have been in this quarterfinal if he wasn't a great match player because there have been two guys who have pushed him to the limits. His game has not been at its best up until this match. And Lucas Klein and Cameron Nori both pushed him extremely hard. And in the end, Zverev was able to come through both of those matches in fifth set tie breaks. And while we're at it, we saw this at United Cup. Really tough scheduling. Fighting through fatigue. Fighting through some major blown chances in that final against Herkoc. And I said it after United Cup. This guy kind of goes to work point in, point out, puts whatever happened behind him. He does all that stuff really, really well. He's tough, and he is dogged and resilient. Okay, let's talk about how he started this match. There was a tone-setting issue, certainly, for Alcaraz. I mean, Alcaraz's first service game was horrendous. Zverev didn't really need to do anything to get to love 40. But overall, Zverev's start was in another stratosphere, uh, level-wise. I mean, let's kind of go through it. He was something in the ballpark of 15 for 16 at the net midway through the second set. Or sorry, uh, midway through the third set. When he was already up two sets to love. His movement was super sharp. His serving was unplayable. Literally unplayable for the vast majority of his service games. 
you know the backhand is going to be deadly and consistent. He basically always has that working for him. But let's remind ourselves of why Alexander Zverev has had trouble winning matches quickly en route to this quarterfinal. Why I picked Alcaraz, the main reason I picked Alcaraz to win this quarterfinal, the main reasoning I went with, was because Zverev's forehand has been broken. It's been really bad the whole tournament, and he's had to win in spite of that. Well, this was a completely different forehand that we saw in this match. I was texting with somebody uh, before the match, and we were going through the scenarios, and I, I said... I said, look, Zverev's forehand, it, it hasn't been good at all, and it'll be a major problem. But I, I also did say there is one chance that it's a lot better in this match because he knows it needs to be. And I, I do think that can happen, where he's played a couple of lefties. He's played a guy in, in Lucas Klein who he probably just wasn't very aware of. But I think coming in against Alcaraz... You know you can't hit short cross-court forehands. Like, you just know you have to go after the ball or he is going to obliterate you. And I just think Alcaraz on the other side of the court, believe it or not, might have helped the forehand a little bit. In addition to coming in knowing the gas tank isn't great here. I played two five-setters. He said before the match, he said in his press conference that he feels good, better than the U.S. Open. But he, he also admitted it's not 100, you know, and it can't be when you play long matches. So Alcaraz across the net and knowing that he's not 100%, maybe that just encouraged him to go after the forehand. Bottom line, there was a forehand down the line threat, a real offensive forehand down the line threat that's been non-existent. And there was depth in the cross-court forehand consistently, which hasn't been a thing. Alcaraz in reaction to this very high level from Zverev, how did he respond? Panic. Like, I just think he panicked. He tried to blast his way through the problem. That's what I was seeing. The only thing Alcaraz did to try to change anything was harder, 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 harder with some foggy-minded drop shots mixed in. And of course, when you're playing Zverev, the pace plays right into his hands. He is a phenomenal absorber. So that, all that, it got Zverev to up two sets to love, 5-2. I think there was a 15-30 with Alcaraz serving at 2-5. Zverev serves for the match at 5-3. The turnaround in this match was more about Zverev getting tight. I, you know, you know I, I'm quick to give Alcaraz credit for a lot of things. I will give Alcaraz some credit shortly, but... The 5-3 break a serve, it's not that Alcaraz didn't play a good return game. He did, but it was also just a different Zverev. Uh, and there was no stopping Sasha if he just kept playing the same. But his forehand came back to reality, and he started getting safe. And um, he started getting safe on his serve locations. And that's a big no-no, obviously. Zverev needs to serve big uh, and get something out of that shot when he's serving for the match at 5-3. But if you look at the locations on his first serves, it was pretty clear that he didn't want to hit second serves because he started hitting these first serves 
into the relatively middle of the box. And you can look at the first two points at the 5-3 game. He's dropping back and he's hitting softer, especially on the forehand. He's hitting loopier, softer forehands. He's giving Alcaraz time to do his thing and tee off offensively. So Alcaraz breaks back on serve, goes to a tie break. Zverev actually gets the first mini break. He gives it right back with a very tight approach shot. It's a backhand approach down the line, which again, it just wasn't the same Zverev that we saw for the first two sets and a half because that Zverev would have laced a backhand probably, you know, neatly about a foot inside the sideline. And this Zverev hit this backhand down the line and it was, you know, really right at Alcaraz's forehand. So easy pass for Alcaraz there. And that got him feeling good. Zverev wasn't hitting as big on the groundies, but he was coming forward. And boy, did Alcaraz have some shot making at his disposal. I mean, it was fun. It was electric. The the talent was 100% on display in this tiebreak. It was passing shot after passing shot. It was awesome. It was awesome stuff from Alcaraz here. He started to feel confident. He started to have some fun with it. He got a, a bit of a swagger. Zverev was giving him a chance to kind of use his shot making because the serve was down and the approach shots were all right, but the pace was a little bit lower than what we were seeing. It was giving Alcaraz some time at least. And uh, yeah, Carlitos just answered the bell. So let's go to the fourth set. And I'm going to talk now in, in some more general terms, and then we'll get into some specifics after that. The fourth set, I thought the dynamics of play in general were pretty favorable for Alcaraz. He was continuing to get more time on the ball, finding high percentage opportunities to be offensive on a decently regular basis. Alcaraz was landing first serves. Alcaraz was making returns. He was smartly using the block return. Great play against Verev, especially if, if Sasha isn't really, really confident on the forehand at the time. It's really a good idea to just block the ball. You're probably, if you're as fast as Alcaraz, going to get in the point that way. Carlitos was moving extremely well. And it seemed like Zverev, in order to finish points, really kind of had to come forward. But the approach shots and the volleys were sometimes not clinical enough. And that was opening up opportunities for Alcaraz. So those things were all working for Alcaraz. Here's what was going for Zverev. He went back to basically never missing first serves. I think it should be noted that not only were the serves into safer targets in general um, in the third set, also it was his lowest percentage. Zverev finishes this match, let me say it now, 85% first serves in. 80 freaking 5. In set 4, it was 88%. So you have a Zverev who's hitting every serve, you know, 125 miles per hour basically or north of that. And he's never missing. So we're starting there. And that's going to get you pretty far in itself. Backhand dynamics for Zverev. Very favorable. Extremely favorable. This was a common thread, I think, throughout the match. And that remained the case in the fourth set. I'm going to get into more detail on that. And he limited errors extremely well. He did not make... A lot of mistakes. And that's kind of one of the good things about Zverev that we've seen in this tournament. That even when he's playing poorly, he's not necessarily making a lot of cheap errors. When he's playing poorly, yeah, he's dropping the ball short. 
It's passive. It allows his opponents to dictate. But that's better. That's better than being a guy who goes off the rails and just kind of misses everything all over the place. First sign that the fourth set was going to be highly competitive after Alcaraz stormed back in the third set. And at this point, remember, the physical question marks are coming back into play. Obviously, there's tons of momentum for Alcaraz after the, the tiebreak that he played at the end of the third. And then what happens? First game of the fourth set, we get a blip right away. It, it cost him that palpable momentum. And this was something that we talked about a lot for Alcaraz second half of last season. When those blips happen at the start of sets, there needs to be a better level of focus. And here at, at Love 15, there was a serve plus one, backhand down the line, unforced error that was way out. And you can't miss a simple plus one ball down Love 15 after that third set on your backhand and not even come close. It's such a bad error to go down love 30. At 15.30, Alcaraz had a ball off of a drop shot. He dictated the point, drop shotted. Zverev got there, and it was an in-tight play where Alcaraz was too nice. I don't know. I'd have to go back and watch. I don't know if the lob was available, but certainly there was no angle to hit around Zverev. You can't go left, you can't go right. That's what happens when the two players are very close to each other at the net. So you have to go straight ahead, right at Zverev. Alcaraz babied it. You have to be ruthless, you have to be mean, and you have to you have to go right at the guy with a little bit of conviction here. Uh, Alcaraz didn't. Zverev made a reflex volley and won the point with it. And then on break point, he got a short ball. Alcaraz got a short ball here on break point, and he missed the forehand down the line wide. Was not a good miss. Another really bad unforced error where he's he's in a winning position, and he probably went too close to the line because it was an approach shot. Zverev has great passing shots, as we'll talk about, but, um, you know, it was, it was a forehand approach shot miss. It's not what you want. So Zverev broke right away in the fourth set. Alcaraz broke right back, but it didn't matter really at that point. At that point, the third set, it was kind of in the rear view. The momentum was shot because Alcaraz played that bad game at the start of the fourth. Let's skip ahead to 3-4 now. At 3-4, what I want to highlight, and this is a Zverev service game, there are two epic rallies that potentially decide the match. Epics. And one was at Deuce, and Alcaraz with one of the most mind-bending gets you will see. And he reset the point with the lob, but he ends up in the next offensive, he ends up getting in an offensive position in the end, goes to the drop shot, doesn't come close to workings. Zverev got there very easily, backhand approach out volley winner couple points later, add in another another point where Alcaraz's defense is really shining. And he ends up going from defense to offense. Forehand cross-court approach shot from Alcaraz. Zverev comes up with the pass. The cross-court pass that forced a very difficult volley error from Alcaraz. You look at those two points at 3-4 
when Carlitos had come back from down 40 love in that game, was applying a ton of pressure, looking for the break of serve that would have seen him serve for the fourth set. And you have two excellent points from Zverev where Alcaraz is just a little bit lacking on the finish after some tremendous defense. I think those two points need to be highlighted. Next game is for all. And for Alcaraz, you have you have a very simple malfunction of the first serve and the backhand. 15 love, backhand on forced error off the net tape. 15 all, Zverev hits a strong return, deep middle. And this is a forced error. It's not an unforced error. What caught my eye on this is Alcaraz did hit the ball cleanly. And it looked like he went for the inside-out backhand here. So Zverev, on the, this is on the deuce side. Zverev hits this awesome deep return. And it looked like Alcaraz went for the inside-out backhand off the short hop, which is the much tougher directional to time. The easier timing is obviously to pull that cross court. And I mean, I'm just thinking you have to recognize that your opponent has hit a great return of serve here, and you need to at least go for the safer response. And if he missed the safer response, you tip your cap, you tip your cap to Zverev. Uh, but in this case, you also have to question Alcaraz's choice. Um, next point, 15-30. Another second serve. This is three straight missed first serves. It's a backhand, a backhand rally. And Alcaraz tries to change direction down the line. And it's long for an unforced error. And I want to take a second now. I want to take a second because this was a major problem and is a major problem for Alcaraz in this matchup. The backhand, a backhand is not favorable, which in itself does not doom Alcaraz in any substantial way. What dooms Alcaraz in a in a much bigger way is the fact that he really struggles to change out of the pattern. He does not have the safe backhand redirection down the line that you know, he can just hit, again, not going for, for too much. Just hit it and make it 10 out of 10 times off of a solid Zverev backhand cross-court trade. That shot, you know, sometimes Alcaraz can kind of go middle off of Zverev's backhand cross-court and, and reset the point back onto his forehand. But he really needs a way to trade that, hit that pattern-changing backhand down the line on a consistent basis. And here he went for it, and he missed it. He misses it a lot, doesn't really have it. That's the problem. Break point here, Zverev made another pass. Short ball, Alcaraz backhand cross-court approach. Zverev had the backhand pass down the line. Uh, so what went wrong for Alcaraz, big picture here? Two things. One, you can't miss so many backhands. And this is true throughout the match. Alcaraz way too erratic on the backhand here. And then the second thing that I, I think is worth mentioning, Zverev wasn't really hurting Alcaraz from the baseline, as, as I mentioned. With Alcaraz's movement and Zverev kind of leaving his, his zone that he was in to start the match, and the ground stroke speed going a little bit down, 
Alcaraz uh, was was safe when they were exchanging ground strokes for the most part. In order for Zverev to find a finish, he had to hit an approach shot. And with that in mind, you have to wonder if Alcaraz wasn't selective enough on the net approaches and the drop shots. Because if you look at so many of the big points here in the fourth set, it's Alcaraz in winning positions kind of in a way letting Zverev off the hook in these baseline rallies by forcing the issue with some net approaches and drop shots. Now, it has to be a part of Alcaraz's game. He's going to, you know, he he wants to come forward. He should come forward. The drop shot is an essential tactic against Zverev. And in no way am I critiquing the fact that he's hitting it. Uh, but you do need to make sure in this situation, when the baseline dynamics are on your side, are favoring you, you, de- you do need to make sure that you are not giving a counterpuncher who hits great passing shots, you're not just letting them off the hook by showing them passing shots or letting them off the hook by hitting drop shots that th- they're getting to easily. You just have to make sure that when you go to those things that you you have enough of an advantage. If not, stay solid, stay patient, stay on the baseline. That's not something Alcaraz does very much at this stage. So head-to-head now, 5-3 Zverev. They've played a lot of weird matches in terms of the circumstances. Each of them have wins over each other that kind of need qualifiers. In addition, Zverev is one of the few players to face Carlos a couple of times before Alcaraz was at a top 10 level. Not a lot of players can say that because there was only like a very short period of time where Alcaraz was playing tour level and he wasn't like a top five player. But Zverev played him twice in that stage. And for those two reasons, the weird circumstances, the two matches that Zverev played when Alcaraz when he was really young, I felt that this head-to-head has been hard to gauge. It's been hard to look at the number and discern something from the number. I think this is the match that solidifies Zverev as a very, very difficult obstacle for Alcaraz. As for the Australian Open, going forward for Zverev, the crazy part, the crazy part after a win like this is how much work he still has to do. The top players performed really well at this event, and the semifinals are set. It's going to be Zverev Medvedev, Djokovic, Sinner. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts. Yes.